As you're taking your seats, go ahead and grab your Bibles and open them up to the book of Acts chapter 15. We're in Acts chapter 15 this morning as we continue to march through this phenomenal book that introduces us really to the life of the early church and the working of the Spirit of God to continue to build His church, to do what He promised He would do. And we get to a place in the Scriptures here, really the center of the book of Acts is right here, chapter 15. And what we see is that there is a council being held to discuss some important matters. And you could say that things are getting slightly political in the church, and there's some need for some people to weigh in on some matters of great importance and value. And uh, I think it's fascinating that we're here and in, in jumping into this. And it made me think this week a little bit of politics, and unless you've been um, sheltered, for the last little while, you realize something pretty significant is happening right now in the United States, right? Something pretty significant. Um, politically speaking, um, they are com- campaigning right now for the office of the President of the United States, and it's a really sad, sad display, isn't it? It's a really discouraging, disheartening, and uh, I'm thankful that I know um, the King above all kings, and that my hope is not in the kingdoms of man. When it comes to politics, they say that your campaign's message is king. It's a common refrain amongst uh, politicians. The, the message is king. The message is the theme of your campaign. It is a broad statement of the values that define your candidacy, the values from which every single issue you talk about get their force and their substance And part of a successful campaign, humanly speaking, is to stay on message. Don't deviate from your message. Stay on message. No matter how many people try to detract you or derail you from your message, stay on message. And most campaign messages are defined by a campaign slogan. In fact, you probably know the slogans um, that the two candidates for president of the United States are running on right now, don't you? Can you think of them? You got it? All right, Donald Trump. Anybody know that one? Come on. Make America great again. Good luck with that, Donald Trump. Anybody know uh, Hillary's campaign slogan? Not, not, not as popular, right? <laughs> Stronger together. Stronger together. These pithy little statements are the messages that they are driving. They're the things that are really um, moving their campaigns forward, so to speak. And these candidates eat, sleep, and breathe the message that they are trying to drive home, the message they believe will help them win the office of the president. And for them to drive this message, here's what's so crucial. Listen, they have to really believe it, so they have to really know it. they got to bleed this message. You know, I think it's interesting. We have a, a sort of a campaign slogan in the Christian life. Can you think of it? Salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Grace alone is really one of the crucial components of our message as followers of Jesus Christ, and it's imperative as followers of Jesus Christ that we believe this message, that we know the heart of this message. It means that our salvation is an undeserving gift from God, and it cannot be earned by any of our efforts. And one of the tactics in any uh, campaign 
is to try to derail the opponent from this message, get them to focus on anything but the message. And the gospel has been making unbelievable progress, we see in the book of Acts. But right now, there are opponents who are rising up against the gospel of Jesus Christ and against this message of grace alone, and they're trying to derail Paul and Barnabas from proclaiming this truth and seeing the gospel advance with power to the nations. At this critical juncture in Acts, there is an attempt to get them off message, to change the message, to add to the message, and this will ultimately, listen, this is so important to see right now where the gospel is making so much progress, any change to the message would destroy the message. And like Paul and Barnabas, we need to, as Christians, stay on message to keep moving forward. No deviating because we know the message that saves, amen? Grace alone, grace alone is what will save. And I want to begin this morning, here's, here's where I want us to go. When I know grace, when I know grace, it's going to produce some things in my life and it's going to lead me down some paths. And first, when I know grace, I wage war against legalism. When I know grace, I wage war against legalism. When we pick up the text in verse 1, it says this, But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. And so being sent on their way by the church, they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles and brought great joy to all the brothers. And when they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they declared all that God had done with them. But some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, it is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. When I know grace, I wage war against legalism. And what we see here is the major issue threatening the church is doctrinal right now. It's theological, and it is specifically related to salvation. It's not a dispute right now that Gentiles can be saved. Right now, that's already been established in the life of the church. The question that is posed to the church here in the book of Acts is, how are Gentiles saved? And that is so imperative for us this morning to understand how anybody can be saved. The issue here is on what basis they should be included into the people of God. And part of the issue at stake here is this. We have two separate distinct groups kind of developing in the life of the church. There are the law-abiding Jewish converts And there is then the law kind of diminishing in one sense. They don't follow the law. Gentile converts. And one of the issues is how can these two people groups who are so radically different actually begin to coexist together? And the solution from these Jews who come down from Judea, they come believing and declaring that they are representing the church at large, really the leadership of the church, And who knows how long these Jewish converts had been kind of tracking down Paul. Maybe they've been going from city to city everywhere where Paul has preached the gospel and they're trying to correct what they see is wrong with the message that Paul has been proclaiming. But right now they meet Paul and Barnabas and their solution 
for how Jews and Gentiles can coexist together, their solution for how Gentiles can be brought in, can be saved, is this. They believe that they must essentially become Jews. That's what's really being said here. They must be circumcised just like the Jews were commanded to, and therefore they must also abide by the rest of the law. They must become Jews. And this was the way that a a Gentile was converted in the Old Testament. They essentially had to become Jewish. And so we just see they're they're kind of bringing forward what they knew was the reality in the Old Testament context, and they're imposing it upon the church. And what we see is that this presents a massive problem. Don't miss the words there. You cannot be saved unless you do this. Imagine the, the pressure and the burden that this would put instantly on the hearers of the gospel, on the believers of the gospel in these Gentile churches. All of a sudden, they're beginning to think, maybe we've got it all wrong. Maybe we've mixed some things up. We we thought we were saved by grace, but here we're being told it's not just grace, although that was likely a part of the equation. It's grace plus, in this case, works. You know, that's essentially what legalism is. It's a self-righteousness. It's a way of making yourself acceptable to God on the basis of your own works, what you can do, what you can earn. And here they believed that that meant abiding by the law. I just want you to think about what this means ultimately for these believers. They already believe they're in the family of God. They've been told they're in the family of God. And, you know, this is almost like a father taking his child, you know, bringing him over one day and sitting him on his lap, this young child, and looking at his child in the eyes and saying, well, child, I, I know that you're, you're living in this home, but I just want you to know you can't actually be a part of this family, and I won't actually love you and accept you until you fulfill all of these rules that I've just laid out for you. You got to take the garbage out, you got to make your bed every morning, you got to make me breakfast and coffee, for sure that's on the list. But until you're doing these things, you can't actually be accepted as my child in my family. And we think of that, right, in, in a family context, how horrendous is that kind of a picture to us. We would never say that to our kids. We would say, you're my child, and no matter what you do, you're you're already a part of my family. You already have my love, and there's nothing you can do to lose my love. You're, You're accepted not because of what you do. And you know what's so interesting is a lot of people approach God like this. They they approach God as if they'll only be acceptable to him on the basis of what they can do. I can't tell you how many conversations I have with unbelievers who who they believe, you know, even in inviting them to church, their natural response is this, well, you know what, I I really don't think I can come to church yet. If I gotta just fix some things in my life first and then maybe I can come to church. You ever hear anybody say like something like that? Maybe, and, and you know, you, we say, well, that's unbelievers. I can't tell you how many believers I've heard say, you know, I, I really want to come back to church or I really want to get involved in church. I just, I just there's so many things that I've got to fix first in my life, you know, because you know, my conscience is just, it's just accusing me. And if I just fix these things first, then I can come back to God. And really what they're saying is this, that their acceptance by God is really founded upon what they can achieve. 
And I just want to encourage you, the Bible tells us just the opposite of that. That's our hope. The Bible teaches us grace alone saves us. Grace alone makes us acceptable to God. This is the heart of the Christian message, and it is the very thing, in one sense, listen, that, that makes it so vastly different and unique from all the other religions in the world. And you know what's so fascinating about these first five verses, and you, just, you look at the people who have come from Judea, and you see how these first five verses are kind of bookmarked, your book ended, excuse me, by this concept of people coming and declaring that you cannot be saved unless you abide by the law, unless you become Jewish. It's just sandwiched in between there. There's some fascinating content, but I just want you to notice this. These individuals preaching this message appear to be genuinely converted. Isn't that amazing? We see Paul addressing apostates in the book of Galatians, people who are clearly not saved, who are trying to impose a kind of a Jewish perspective on the believers for them to be saved. But here, these people are actually called, especially in the the last verse, some Pharisees rose up, by the way, some, some believers who belong to the party of the Pharisees, they appear to be followers of Christ. And what's so amazing about that is that They did not know, not truly, not ultimately, not in the deepest sense, the joy of pure grace, of God's divine favor freely given, of the unearned, undeserved favor of God. Somehow, at this point in their lives, they had got things confused. And I just just think that speaks, listen, that ought to speak to us as well, and we'll get there in a second. But this this did not go over well with Paul and Barnabas. I love how the Word of God phrases things sometimes. Verse 2 says this, and after Paul and Barnabas, Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them. That's like saying things exploded, like Paul and Barnabas have founded their ministry upon this concept of grace alone. And so all of a sudden, here are these Judaizers coming into the church saying, hold on a second here. We need grace, but we also need to add this if you're going to be acceptable to God. And Paul's like, what? He, he, he just, the phrases there imply this, that Paul waged a war against this kind of thinking in the life of the church. He was not going to put up with it. It had no place in the life of the church, and he wasn't going to sit back passively and wait for things to settle down or pass. He engages with these people, probably lovingly and graciously, but I'm telling you, he went after it. He goes to war against legalism. This issue is so serious. It's so serious that the Word of God tells us that they needed to make sure they brought this back to the founding church, you know, the mothership church in Jerusalem, where all of the uh, apostles were, those you know, who had laid the foundation of the church. He's like, let's go back to the apostles. Let's have this discussion with them. Let's allow them to weigh in on this so that we can make sure we move forward unified. That's part of the issue here, church. They're unified. And so they begin the trek back to Jerusalem. I love, I love that, that Luke throws this in there, that they're going through, passing through Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles. You think Paul had something to say about grace alone being involved in that Gentile conversion? I mean, he's walking back and he's telling them how God has been working so miraculously to save Gentiles. Remember, this is still so radical, this concept of Gentiles being brought into the church. What we view as being so normative was so radical to them. There's a picture there. When they get to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders. In other words, they were embraced. There's this picture of unity. In other words, the majority of the church is 
being depicted here as being unified and on the same page as Paul and Barnabas. There's respect and mutual love and esteem, and that's going to lead us into the conversation that follows. But just to amp things up a little bit, what we see is that life in Jerusalem and in the church in Jerusalem was not picture perfect either. Some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees, they rose up and they said, it is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. Pharisees are mentioned often in Scripture, and they were those who loved the law. They followed it scrupulously. I mean, they were so detailed, so meticulous in their obedience to the law. It's clear that many of them had actually been saved, but what we see is that there was still a rigid connection to following the law and obeying the law that was influencing their day-to-day lives, even as followers of Christ. This is a huge problem, and I just, I just want to first maybe encourage us to think this through a little bit. This tells me that, first of all, we need to go to war against legalism in our own hearts. When we go to war against legalism, it's easy to kind of begin on, on the outside and, and go after those maybe who are trying to bring legalism in, but I just want to suggest to you that this, this text makes it clear that it's possible for genuine followers of Christ to actually adhere to legalistic thinking. And I think if we're honest with ourselves, every one of us realizes that that is actually our default. These were genuine followers of Jesus Christ. But I want you to see this as well. They were also products of their upbringing. In one sense, we can't fault them entirely for this confusion and misunderstanding. You know, they were brought up in a Jewish home with Jewish teachings and Jewish rituals. Their day was consumed with following the commandments of the law. They were taught it uh, from a very young age. They memorized them, and it was just so, so normal for them to believe that God was pleased with them by the following of the law. And all of a sudden, they come to be gripped by the claims of Jesus Christ and they realize in that moment that it confronts their reliance upon the law and it produces within their hearts a civil war. Placing their faith in Christ was costly and making a clean break with their past was not easy. Many of the Jews continued to live in a very distinctively Jewish way. With good intentions, they began to thrust these distinctives on others as we see here. And this would begin to cause, for many of them, a slow drift into apostasy. As we think about them, we need to think about our own hearts. You see, grace confronts our fleshly desire to earn God's favor. And I want to speak specifically, listen, specifically as it relates to salvation. So many of us live as if God is only pleased with us if we are somehow perfect and obedient. And legalism lives in the heart of every person. You just need to embrace that right now. Why, why would I say that? Because it's the greatest enemy of the gospel. It always has been. It is Satan's attack on the church to convince people that somehow they can earn their way back to God. They can save themselves. Every other religion in the world is a religion of human achievement. When you boil it right down, that's what's at the heart of every single religious system in the world. Somehow, you can achieve salvation, even if it's coupled with grace. The one distinct thing about Christianity is that it is purely by divine accomplishment. That is grace alone. Only God, only God could accomplish this. 
And the war in our hearts reflects the war between God and Satan. Grace plus anything ultimately equals nothing. Any addition to grace, any co-requirement inevitably ends up shoving grace aside and becoming the means of salvation. So how, how do we wrestle this through in our lives? Well, I think as Christians, we need to keep coming back to the gospel and we need to keep coming back to Jesus Christ. We, we kind of begin to drift into legalistic thinking in so many different ways in our lives. I love what Peter says in 2 Peter 3.18. He says, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. And one of the greatest ways we can continue to be saturated with grace is to get in the word of God and to study specifically, listen, the person of Jesus Christ. You know, the one, the Bible says, who is full of grace and truth. And we need to get our eyes on Jesus, and it's so fascinating. When we do that, we see the compassion, we see the love, we see the acceptance and embracing of so many different people. And you want to know the, the one people group he was perpetually angry with? The legalists, the Pharisees. So we wage war first in our own hearts against legalism, and secondly, I think we also wage war against legalists who try to make a works righteousness salvation a requirement. I mean, Paul and Barnabas remind us that we must withstand every false doctrine that threatens the biblical teaching of grace alone. Teachings such as, for example, you're thinking, well, how does this affect the church? Let me just give you a couple examples. There are people who believe in what's called baptismal regeneration. In other words, your salvation is dependent upon your baptism that actually aids in saving you. There are people who believe that salvation comes through sacraments. And this is so serious when it comes to false teaching. Look, nothing is more wicked than for someone to claim to speak for God to the salvation of souls when in reality he speaks for Satan to the damnation of souls. Adding anything to grace actually ends up destroying the gospel, stripping it of any sort of saving power. And so we wage war against Satan by going after those who are trapped in a works righteousness religious system. We evangelize those, we call them out of that, and we point them to the truth of Scripture which calls us to embrace and to know grace alone. When I understand and when I know grace, I wage war against legalism. Secondly, I declare it as the only way. I declare it as the only way, and all of a sudden we're introduced to kind of a meeting within this larger meeting. It appears that Paul and Barnabas are meeting first with everybody collectively. We've got the apostles, we've got elders, we've got the church gathered. There's a massive meeting, and verse 6 kind of appears to point to this kind of honing down, a meeting with simply the apostles and the elders, the chief leaders in the church in Jerusalem. It says the apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter. They'd heard it broadly speaking, and now they want to get behind closed doors, so to speak, and discuss this more in-depthly, maybe digging into the theology to the practical implications of all of this. Verse 7 says, and after there had been much debate, this was no small issue, Peter stood up and he said to them, brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. Peter's listening to all of the commotion, and everybody probably has had a chance to voice their concerns and voice their opinions, and finally Peter, you know, who has a hard enough time keeping his mouth shut, stands up and he begins to declare to them, listen, as the chief amongst the apostles, he begins to tell them about his experience and remind them 
about how God had used him to open the door to the Gentile world so that Paul could run through and spread the good news across the nations. And we remember that in Acts chapter 10, Peter was sitting on his roof meditating, and all of a sudden he has this vision from God. And in this vision, a sheet comes down from heaven, and it's filled with all kinds of unclean animals to the Jews, you know, creeping, crawling things and birds that they weren't supposed to touch or go near, all of these unclean animals. And, and, and the, the, the Spirit of God tells him, says, Peter, rise, kill, and eat. And Peter, being a good Jew, says, Lord, I've never eaten anything unclean, right? God's got to pound this lesson into his heart, and finally, Peter begins to get the idea. At the same time, God has been working in the hearts of some Gentiles, some God-fearing Gentiles, a man named Cornelius, and all of a sudden, uh, these visitors come to Peter and say, hey, we are in need of you. The Spirit of God has sent for you, and you've got to come, and Peter knew they were coming, and God just divinely appointed this meeting at Cornelius' house where Peter gets to walk into a Gentile's house, something that they dare not do as a Jew, realizing that God was saying, look, these people are no longer unclean. I have come for them as well. I'm not just in the business of saving Jews. I'm in the business of saving Gentiles. And this is the beginning of that, Peter. He declares to them the the good news of Jesus Christ. He lays out the gospel that Jesus came, uh, died, and he was raised to life. And I love this. In verse uh, 30, where is it here? Ch- chapter 10, verse 43, he says this, to him, speaking of Jesus, all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. That's another way for Peter to say, look, the, the, the way of salvation, the only way is by grace alone, by believing in what Jesus has accomplished, you can actually have the forgiveness of your sins, even you Gentiles who are once so far off. So Peter sees fit to say, hey, remember my experience? Remember how God made this clear through my experience? He spoke to me and I shared with you and we celebrated together how God was saving Gentiles. And here it is in verse 8, I love this. And God, who knows the heart, he bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. And he reminds us that the issue of salvation is not one of external works, it's one of internal cleansing that is needed. And the way that cleansing happens is by faith, you know, by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. We look to his finished work, just like these Gentiles do. And Peter is reminding them. He's always saying, they were saved the same way we were. We had to look to Jesus. It wasn't because of our uh, keeping the law that we could be saved. It was all because of Jesus keeping the law perfectly, like we couldn't. And God knows the heart. And watch how Peter wants to make clear that God initiated, God confirmed, God embraced the Gentiles. You see that? Peter's just saying, like, look, I didn't design this. This was God's plan. It was all about God's doing. God 
God embraced them when they were still Gentiles. He didn't send me to them and say, hey, hey, uh, you want to be saved? That's great. I'm glad you guys are so excited to hear the message. Now, here's what we got to do. We got to make sure that you obey all the law. We got to make sure that you get circumcised. We got to make sure all of this stuff happens, and then we'll talk about how you can really be saved. In fact, the Spirit of God showed up and demonstrated and confirmed that God had done the cleansing work of salvation in the hearts of these Gentiles. There was nothing else necessary. They received the same Spirit that the Jews did upon their conversion. And that's why verse 10 is so important. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test? By placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear. Anytime you see this concept of putting God to the test in the scriptures, it is a bad, bad plan. It never works out well. Nobody is ever commended for putting God to the test in the scriptures. And, and that's because essentially when, when it, what it's saying here, when you try and put God to the test, really this is reaching back into an Old Testament principle. And anytime you put God to the test, the implication was this. Does God really see my sin and will God really punish my sin? Anybody here ever test the Lord? I mean, really, I know what the Word of God says, but does he really see my sin, and will I really be punished for my disobedience? In essence, Peter is saying, don't you get it? When you reject this concept, when you add anything to grace alone, what you're saying is this, God, are you really sure you've got it right? And really, if we tweak this a little bit, I mean, we'll be fine. There's nothing really wrong with what we're doing. Anything added to grace is a serious problem, and it invites Listen, it invites consequences and the condemnation of the Lord. He says, you're placing this burden upon them. Listen to what Paul said in Galatians 5, 1 through 4. It's on the screen behind me. It says, for freedom Christ has set us free. Stand for therefore, then, excuse me, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. A yoke was placed on the neck of an animal, and it was to be able to control them to do what you wanted it to do. He says, look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. You are severed, he says, from Christ, you who would be justified by the law. You have fallen away from grace. Do you see that? Anything you add actually pulls you away from grace. And he's looking at these Jews and he's saying, look, the law couldn't save us. Why would you think it could save them? And God had not given them the law to save them. He gave it to them as a schoolmaster, as a tutor to lead them to Christ, right? The law shows us our sinfulness. It shows us our own inability. And it reminds us that we are in desperate need of God's mercy and grace. And so he says in verse 11, but we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus just as they will. That verse is so central to this entire chapter. It is so central to the gospel of Jesus Christ and what Peter is declaring is that there is only one way. We will not accept another way. We will accept no additions we will stick with grace alone, the way God says it's supposed to be. And Paul and Barnabas in verse 12, look at this. They confirm this by their own experience. And all the assembly fell silent and they listened to Barnabas and Paul as they related what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. In other words, look, we can have ample evidence and proof. The experience is clear. Look at what God has been doing. Look at what God has been doing. 
He's been saving the Gentiles by grace alone, never making them become Jews first. And then James steps up. James is one of the key elders in the church. He is the half-brother of Jesus. He is known throughout church history as James the Just. He is a man who is esteemed and praised for his godliness and character. They said his knees were calloused like a camel for the amount of time he spent praying. He was so loved, so respected. He was an Orthodox Jew. He was a Jew to the core. And so all of a sudden, Luke sees fit to remind us that even those who are the most Jewish of them all agree with what is being said here. And he wants to take it a step further. He doesn't want to just talk about the way that that, that we've experienced this. He wants to show how this argument is rooted entirely in the Scriptures, And so verse 13, it says, after they finished speaking, James replied, brothers, listen to me. Simeon has related. Simeon is just another way of saying Peter. In fact, it's actually more of a Jewish way of saying Peter. Again, the the appeal to the Jews who were there. Simeon has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. And with this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written, after this, I will return and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins and I will restore it that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord. And listen to this, and all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from old. These things were known from of old. These things have always been what God has revealed. And here, James stands and he presents such a masterful uh, picture of what the scriptures say. He quotes mainly from Amos uh, chapter 9, verses 11 and 12, but he has mixed into here portions from Isaiah and Jeremiah and even Daniel. And what he's just showing, I just think he's grabbing from different places and he's wanting to show, don't you see, the whole breadth of the Old Testament declares that God will redeem for himself a people for his name from the nations. This has always been God's plan. The prophets agree. We're seeing this being fulfilled right now before our very eyes. God is gathering Gentiles to himself. God's people, it was, always, it was always the plan that God's people would consist of two concentric groups. The Jews and the Gentiles would overlap significantly in the church age. The Jews here in verse 16 are represented by the tent of David, and they're gathered around, then gathered all around them would be Gentiles who would share in the blessings of the Messiah, who would, or excuse me, without, here's Peter's point, remember this, without becoming Jewish. James is saying, see what's happening is simply aligning with the scriptures. It's always been what is promised. And I just want you to see this. Both of these men remind us that we must be willing to declare this truth as the only way. I I love that. The two key leaders, in a time where they could have compromised, in a time where they could have tried to appease different people groups, you notice that? They could have done that, and they could have destroyed the church, but here is where strength was needed. Here is where spiritual courage was needed, where the gospel was being attacked most centrally was the time where God's people, God's leaders stood up and declared with boldness, there was only one way. You and I are going to be faced with opportunities to compromise this truth. 
Maybe some of you already have. Maybe some of you have wrestled through this and, and wanting, like our culture, wanting to be inclusive of other people and even other people who declare themselves evangelicals or Christians. You know, I think specifically of Mormons or Jehovah's Witnesses and, and a whole, whole number of cults who actually would say, I'm a brother in Christ. I'm a sister in Christ. I'm a follower of Christ. But at the end of the day, they believe in a grace plus work system. And what's needed is, is people who are going to be able to stand and speak clearly and graciously, listen, but boldly for the truth of the gospel because leading, leaving people in this work, grace plus works system only leads them to hell. God said it. We've experienced it. And I declare it. That's what we see here. This is the pattern that we must embrace. God said it. We've experienced the grace of God, right? And I now declare it is grace alone. When I know grace alone, I wage war against legalism. I declare it as the only way. And thirdly, look at this. I love those who are different. Remember, so much of the issue at stake here is how are these two groups, groups now going to live together? How are they going to coexist? They come up with a solution, and everybody begins to realize that with Peter and James and Paul and Barnabas, they're all unified in this decision. They're speaking the truth so plainly and so clearly. And then Peter gives some implications for what this means for the body of Christ. Verse 19 says, therefore, my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God, but should write to them to abstain from the things polluted by idols and from sexual immorality and from what has been strangled and from blood. For from ancient generations, Moses has had in every city those who proclaim him, for he has read every Sabbath in the synagogues. We're going to unpack that in a minute, but here's what you need to see in this next section, verses 22 through 29. It says, Then it seemed good to the apostles and the elders with the whole church to choose men from among them and send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. They send a delegation back to the church, and they want to show that this is represented by, by both Jews and Gentiles, and so certain men are selected very intentionally. They sent Judas called Barsabbas and Silas, leading men among the brothers with the following letter. They, they write a letter. So here's what they're doing. They're sending this delegation. They're wanting everybody to know that there's unity, that everything is finalized. And so they put it in a letter just to make sure nothing's tampered with and you know, it's signed off on. See, man, they're going to great lengths to communicate this. Yes, that, that demonstrates the seriousness of the issue, but here's what it also demonstrates. Listen, the love the love they have for their brothers and sisters in Christ. They want to communicate so clearly with them. And so it says that they sent them, the brothers, both the apostles and the elders, to the brothers who are of the Gentiles in Antioch and Syria and Cilicia. Greetings. And here's what the letter said, since we have heard that some persons have gone out from us and troubled you with words, unsettling your minds, although we gave them no instructions, they didn't come from us. It has seemed good to us, having come to one accord, here's the unity, to choose men and send them to you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul, men who have risked their lives for the sake of the Lord Jesus Christ. We have therefore sent Judas and Silas, who themselves will tell you the same things by word of mouth. For it has seemed good to the Holy Spirit, notice who's directing this whole thing, 
to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay on you no greater burden than these requirements, that you abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what has been strangled and from sexual immorality. And if you keep yourselves from these, you will do well. Farewell. It's kind of an abrupt ending, huh? Now, we read this, and initially, this truth kind of startles us, doesn't it? Like, wait a second, wait a second. I thought the whole argument here, what we agreed upon, was grace alone. Why all of a sudden, then, are there these restrictions? They sound an awful lot, actually, like the law. Look, this truth, if embraced, has some important implications. Grace alone does, listen, for how we function in the body of Christ. And one of the primary issues at stake here is how we interact with one another, how we forge unity so that the mission can be continuing and moving forward, right? Nothing would slow down the mission of God if there was a division within the church, if there was kind of a separation of people groups who are doing their own little things and worried about their own little problems. So how are we going to bridge these differences? The overarching principle in the body of Christ is this, the principle of loving one another. In fact, Galatians 5, verse 6, on the screen behind me says this, For in Christ Jesus, is it there? There we go. Neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. Grace saves me, but grace changes me. That's, that's what he's driving home for the church here. Grace saves me. Yes, grace alone saves me, but you have to see that grace changes me. It changes the kind of person I am. It changes what I fight for. It changes the desire to have things my way. And it changes me first by causing me to embrace who God embraces You see verse 19 there, it says, therefore my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God. And that's a statement of love and care for the Gentiles. This is a Jew speaking and he's wanting to make sure that these Gentiles understand that they are embraced by God, by grace alone. Therefore, they are embraced in the church. As those under grace, we are not to make non-biblical requirements of others. That's part of the point here that is being made, specifically those that come from secondary cultural traditions. In that day, that meant not foisting a Jewish lifestyle on Gentiles, not making them adhere to the Jewish rituals and practices. Today, listen, today this means that we're not to make areas of our lifestyle that are not spelled out in Scripture normative for others if they are to be good Christians. This is such a problem in so many churches and it's a tendency in our heart to think that we can add to the Word of God in some small ways, in subtle ways to make people think that they're good and acceptable. We should never come alongside others, for example, and, and tell them and make this normative for them to be acceptable Christians of how they dress or how they run the church or the standards of living that you know, we think are proper for ourselves, what form of education we've chosen for our children, our personal taste, our musical preferences, even including a worship service. You see, if we thrust any of these things on others as necessary to a life of grace, we actually repeat the sin of the Judaizers here. 
And the struggle in our hearts and the struggle in every church is often to embrace those who differ and who don't hold the same convictions. If you just look around in this room, what you're going to find is that there are a lot of people here who have different opinions and preferences than you, even when it comes to biblical perspectives. And our, our greatest problem at times is that we can impose our preferences on others and judge those who don't embrace them. So I just want to encourage you, as we strive for unity and love together, we need to stop holding people to standards that God isn't holding them to. And we need to start embracing who God embraces. And that's what grace teaches us to do. You know, God didn't make me jump through all of these hoops to be accepted by Him. I shouldn't do that to others so that they can be acceptable to me or to give them the impression that that's how they can be acceptable to God. There's a second component to loving others here, and that's seen in these requirements that are given to the Jewish believers. That's how you have to see this. There's this, there's this love expressed for the, for the Gentiles in that this is the way in which you should be embraced by our Jewish brothers. We don't want to throw the law on you. That's not loving. That's not what God requires of you. But then he turns and he looks at the Gentile believers, and he says, well, listen, how can you, as followers of Christ, love your Jewish brothers and sisters in Christ? How can you welcome them into the family of God and not, listen, and not crush their convictions or despise what they believe is important to their way of life? That's the idea here. And what at first appears to contradict the understanding of grace, James actually gives some instruction to the Gentiles. And again, it sounds an awful like the law, but what he's really doing is he's saying, here's how you can sacrifice some things to love your brothers and sisters in Christ. And one of the greatest ways we love others is by sacrificing, listen, what we are free to do for the sake of somebody else. He gives three restrictions. And he repeats them, and so we'll just look at them briefly here in verse 20. He says, you should write that they should abstain from the things polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, and from what has been strangled, and from blood. The first two seem pretty reasonable, right? The, The idea there is that there's to be no idolatry and no immorality. And you say, well, these things should be a pretty normally understood in the Christian life. Yes, yes, and at the same time, listen, the, the Gentiles who are being saved are being saved also out of pagan backgrounds, pagan styles and forms of worship. And so just in the same way the Jews were incorporating some of their you know, background into their worship of God and their way of life, so too the Gentiles were at risk of doing the very same thing, the things that they were so used to, the things that were habitual for them. These things are all so connected to the Gentile pagan forms of worship. Verse 21 really helps us understand this from, an, from this idea of loving others. For from ancient generations, Moses has in every city those who proclaim him, for he has read every Sabbath in the synagogue. All he's saying there is this, that Jewish communities existed in nearly every city and that Gentiles were being told not to do anything that would violate intentionally the conscience of the Jews. Just embrace this principle in your life, Christian. Because we are under grace, we gladly restrict our freedom for the sake of others. Because we are under grace, we gladly restrict our freedom for the sake of others. There was not anything intrinsically wrong, listen, with eating a rare steak, okay? That wasn't the issue. But James said to boil it or eat it well done for the sake, listen, of fellowship with the Jews. 
Paul states the same principle in 1 Corinthians 9, verses 19 through 21. He says, for though I am free from all, he's talking about, uh, listen, he's free from the Jewish restrictions. He's, he's free to live uh, without that yoke of the law. He says, I, I'm free from all that. Look, I love this though. I love this heart here. I have made myself a servant to all. Tell me this just doesn't sound like Jesus to you. That, look, at what's the reason? That I might win more of them, right? Like, why would I needlessly go and put an obstacle in the way of my, of my Jewish friends when I know if I would just be willing to sacrifice my freedom, it actually might lead to me being able to win them because I'm showing them, I love you so much. To the Jews, I became a Jew in order to win the Jews. To those under the law, I became as one under the law, though not being myself under the law, that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law, I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. You know, sometimes we read these verses and some people are inclined to think that this is about using your freedoms to win people to Christ, when in reality what Paul is saying is you've got to be willing to give up your freedoms sometimes to win people to Christ. It's powerful. The things that you're allowed, the things that you can freely enjoy, sometimes the greatest, listen, the greatest ministry to those who don't know Jesus Christ is your willingness to say, I want nothing to be a hindrance. So we embrace each other and we sacrifice our freedoms for each other. We love one another. You know, part, part of the danger and what causes so much division in the church is people fighting so much about their own preferences, their own ways of doing things that are just outside the bounds of Scripture. And how beautiful is it where we are willing to give those things up, sacrificing for others. We love one another when we refuse to put any hindrance or stumbling block in front of them and what a call to us as, as a church. That's what I do when I know grace. And lastly, I, when I know grace, I celebrate my undeserved freedom. Part of that whole section is, is about recognizing that you are freed from the weight of the law. There is a, a freedom that comes from knowing Christ because of grace alone. And we get to the end, and in verse 30, it says that so when they were sent off, they went down to Antioch, and having gathered the congregation together, they delivered the letter, and when they had read it, they rejoiced because of its encouragement. And Judas and Silas were there, were themselves prophets, encouraged and strengthened the brothers with many words, and after they had spent some time, they were sent off in peace by the brothers to those who had sent them. But Paul and Barnabas remained in Antioch teaching and preaching the word of the Lord with many others also. You know, it's so fascinating. They, they come back and they read this letter to these Gentiles. Remember, these Gentiles had been a part of that initial dispute. They had seen the discussion. They had heard that they were supposed to become Jews first so they could be accepted by God. And so they're waiting anxiously and eagerly to hear, I mean, what, what's the truth? Was Paul and Barnabas right or, or, or did they miss something? They rejoice when they heard the encouragement. Now think about that. They rejoice because they've heard that it's about grace alone, but they're also rejoicing in how this imposes some restrictions on the way they're living. Think about this. They're rejoicing that they have to now sacrifice some freedoms. Normally, we're like, oh, really? I got to give something up for somebody? They're celebrating. You say, how could they do that? Oh, I think maybe part of it, you know, I, I, read, a, I read about a college student who had written a letter she had written a letter, seen her first year of college, written home to her parents, 
and the letter went something like this. It said, you know, hi, Mom and Dad. Um, just want to let you know that I met a guy named Johnny. Um, we just started dating. He got out of prison last week, and uh, we've decided that uh, I'm going to drop out of school, and next week I'm going to get married. It's every parent's dream. And, and then it flipped it over, and, and on the back it said, Mom, Dad, I'm, I'm just kidding. Um, I don't know what Johnny, and I don't even have a boyfriend, but uh, I'm going to need some money for tuition this year, and uh, <laughs> I'm not going to be home for Christmas. And uh, you know, see, sometimes hearing some news is cause for celebration, right, when in, in light of what it could be. And you know, there's a sense in which those Jewish or those Gentile believers, maybe we're expecting to hear the bad news that we got to become Jews first, and what they hear is, really, all we got to do is give up some restrictions, and that's actually the way we love others? Like, this is a win-win. And I think there's this great celebration that takes place. You know, what a relief. When I, listen, when I know grace alone, I know true freedom, and I think that's exactly what they're celebrating. There, there is true freedom, and I just got three kind of last thoughts for you as it comes to um, what it means to celebrate and why we should celebrate this undeserved freedom because first, listen, I am freed from my efforts to earn salvation. I'm freed. I'm freed from my efforts to earn salvation. That enslaved me before. That was impossible before. And so we look at something that we thought maybe works, our own right ability to earn God's uh, um, forgiveness in our lives. And what we see is this, that that was impossible, but God made a way through Jesus Christ. And by his grace, I can be accepted because of what Jesus Christ has done. How freeing is that? And for some of you in here, you've not experienced the freedom that comes from the gospel of Jesus Christ. You've been working at it. You've believed that somehow you can earn your salvation. You can be good enough. And what God is saying to you today is this, that is worthless, that is enslaving you, that will lead you nowhere but to hell. But by my grace and my grace alone, I have made a way and it is free for you. Embrace my son, Jesus Christ. He lived the perfect life that you could not live. He obeyed the law perfectly because you couldn't. He died in your place, and he took on the punishment that you deserve for your sin. Every bit of the punishment that you should have, right? He, he suffered the wrath of God, and then he was raised to life so that, look, you could be liberated. You could have life instead of living the death that it is to be in bondage to sin. I'm freed. I hope you can celebrate that this morning. Can you do that, church, if you're a follower of Christ? You are freed this morning from your efforts to earn your salvation. It has been accomplished for you. Praise God. And so I would just say to you, if that's not you, run to his grace this morning. Run as fast and furiously as you can to the foot of the cross and bow before him and see his arms open wide to you and embrace him as your Lord and master and know true freedom for whom the Son sets free is free indeed. Secondly, look, and I can celebrate my undeserved freedom because I am free to live for Christ as a joyful response. The gospel in the heart of a Christian calls for a response. When you hear grace, you shouldn't just be saying, oh, I know this, I know this is true. Maybe that is true that you know this, but you need to see that grace calls for a response. And it calls for us, you know, I love the phrase that we're debtors to God's grace. In other words, when we know his grace, we feel compelled to then live for the one who died to set us free. Right? He, has, he has embraced us from this pit of slavery, from the prison cell of our sin. He has flung the doors open. He has carried us out. And so our response when we look at the grace of God ought to be, God, hallelujah, I want to live for you. You're the one who set me free. I owe everything to you. 
You see, we're freed to follow hard after Christ because of what he has done for us. And we're freed, listen, because we're no longer you know, strapped down by sin. We're infused with the power of the Spirit of God. His grace is available through the power of the Spirit for daily living and daily pursuing him. So church, I just want to encourage you. Some of us have not been living in a joyful response to his grace, and I just want to exhort you this morning, look, repent from your sin and run back to his grace and live from that grace. And lastly, look, I, I, am, I can celebrate my undeserved freedom because I'm free to proclaim freedom from death and sin. Our response is to live fully surrendered to him, but our response is also, it entails this, declaring that freedom to others. And when we have the ability to go and help release captives, we go forward with the message of freedom to tell the freeing work of Christ. And so I want to encourage you, church, as you consider his grace in your life, run to declare his grace to others. Amidst all the fervor of the election and politics, let it be a reminder that we are on a campaign trail for the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. We are heralds of the king. He will not be voted in because he is already the rightful king of the universe, amen? And he is coming back again very soon to reclaim what is rightfully his. But he will be embraced by many. Our message is clear. Salvation comes by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Let's stay on message, church. And when we know grace, we go to war against legalism we declare it as the only way. We love those who are different and we celebrate the freedom that is ours. Grace alone. God, we pray that you would refresh our hearts with this crucial truth, Lord. Lord, the truth that really makes all the difference in the world that reminds us, Lord, that there is nothing we can do to earn our salvation, that, Lord, we are called by your grace and as a gift of your grace to place our faith in Jesus Christ. Father, we know that grace must save us and we believe with all of our hearts that grace must also change us. And so, Lord, we are so dependent upon your grace each and every day. And God, I, I ask that even now that you would allow us to reflect and consider your grace in our lives, both at the moment of salvation, but God, even today, all the ways in which your grace is evidenced in our lives. And God, would you just give us a fresh picture of how grace alone changes everything. And God, may you make it our joy this morning to sing of your great grace. May this be sweet and refreshing to our souls, but Lord, may it be pleasing to you as we lift our voices. Now we ask God, receive our praise. God of all grace, we love you. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.